Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Who's Talking, the podcast where we talk about all things Doctor Who. I'm Michael. And I'm Maggie. And this week we're going to be talking about this year's Doctor Who festive special, Eve of the Daleks. New Year's Eve. Sarah is working. Again. Nick is her only customer. Again. Same old, same old. Except this year, their countdown to midnight will be the strangest and deadliest they've ever known. Why is an executioner Dalek targeting these two people in this place on this night? Why are they having to live through the same moments again? Can the Doctor, Yaz, and Dan save them and survive into the new year? So Maggie, what did you think about the episode? I think that I am going to have a much more positive review than you, because this episode was kind of right up my alley. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Do I think it was the greatest festive special that Doctor Who has had? No. But it was fun. I enjoyed myself. And after a whole season of ramped up stakes, we have to follow like eight different characters and we have to care about all of these different things. It was nice to just have a time loop. You could focus on the one thing and then focus on it over and over again. And it was just it was it was fun. It was cute. It allowed us to get to know the characters a bit more because that's one of the big things that was the problem with Flux is that we didn't get to know the characters as much. We didn't get to see... I mean, we saw a bit of how Yaz was reacting to everything, a bit of how Dan was reacting to everything, but largely it was the Doctor and... Belle, honestly, we saw more of them and how they were dealing with everything than we did the rest of the cast. So after a whole season of that, getting one of my favorite tropes and an excuse to do a bunch of character development was just very welcome. And I was very satisfied. So I've seen it twice as of recording this. This is is Tuesday. The episode aired on Saturday. When I watched it the first time, I was quite grumpy about it, as Maggie can attest. He was a tad bit grumpy, yes. <laughs> and my my issue was, so everything that Maggie said, I largely agree with. My issue is that I didn't think they did the time loop very well. And I also didn't like the romance between Nick and Sarah. I didn't think that worked the way that they were trying to make it work. And so those two things for me ended up being kind of insurmountable problems to where I was just like, okay, yeah, that was fine. Like I didn't – I had a fun watching it, but it wasn't like an episode that I would rewatch in a hurry. I I get that. And if I had to choose a festive special to rewatch, it wouldn't be this one. I will say it's my second favorite of the three that Chibnall has done, though. So it does have that going for it. Because I think all three of them have actually been pretty pretty solid. Like, there isn't really a clunker of the three. There isn't. You're right. I think last year's was just so good, though. Yeah, that's the problem, is it's coming off the heels of a really good one. And this one was like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Okay. I guess the first thing that I want to talk about is that, that time loop. So I think I'm going to have a lot to say, so I want to hear what you have to say first. I think that I had a lot fewer problems with the time loop than you did. I think it was, it was fun. I think the, the countdown aspect of it, where it was a minute shorter each time, allowed for there to be, you know, more stakes. There wasn't time to do the fun little, you know, how many weird things can we do before we die montage? That being said, I think as they got closer to the end, the countdown worked in their detriment because we ended up with an unrealistic amount of time 
to do stuff. So, you know, they're running up and down the stairs and they're counting everything down to the last second, but they're doing all of this in a minute. And it doesn't feel like a minute when you're watching it. It feels like you're watching a five-minute scene, largely because you know that nobody can run up five flights of stairs in a minute. So that was sort of where, I, where I'm at with that. I enjoyed it until it stopped working. So actually, surprisingly, for, for as grumpy as I was, I, I more or less agree with what you said. I just think that for me, when it stopped working, it stopped working really hard and kind of retroactively made me enjoy the first half less. Because for the first half of it, while it was pretty like simplistically done in terms of time loop stories, it, it was it was fine. It was fun. I, I really appreciated the way that they didn't really dawdle with the characters understanding they were in a time loop. Because, like, so often, like, half of a time loop story are the characters not realizing that's what they're in. So I kind of appreciated that we just got right to it. Like, the first time they looped, everybody kind of figured out that's what's going on. And by, you know, the third loop, they're all talking about it explicitly to each other. That part I really appreciated. And I really, because it, it left room for them to make more jokes about the time loop. And the gags were really funny. And they let all of them be in the time loop, which usually it's just one or two people. So that, I think, helped a lot as well with that. And I, I, I really liked that there's a scene in the third time loop. It's the when, where the first time that Nick and Sarah meet the Doctor, Yaz, and Dan. And it, it, the, the beat where, like, everybody's on the same page. And it gets to be so funny because, because the time loop is so simple. And the rules are so clearly established immediately. That being said, and maybe this is because I'm sort of spoiled by, like, Stephen Moffat Doctor Who, I feel like there's, like, a lost opportunity to have pushed the time loop idea a little more, to, to have made it, like, a little weirder. How do you mean? This felt like a very standard execution of a time loop trope, with the exception of the minute shortening each time. But since both of us agree that that kind of ultimately ended up working to the detriment, I'm not sure that's a positive. And I just feel like for something like Doctor Who, which is about time travel, there was maybe something more clever to do with a time loop story than just a time loop story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I get that. And that's not necessarily the episode's fault. Like, I'm, I'm well aware that that is me having expectations that are maybe unfair. So I'm not I'm not going to like harp on that. That's just me kind of going, all right, whatever. It's fine. See, I just enjoy a classic time loop. So I think that I was going to be okay with it. I don't want to say no matter what, because we both know that I didn't enjoy Heaven Sent, which I know is a very, very unpopular opinion. Um, so I shouldn't say that I'll just enjoy any time loop. But for the most part, I will enjoy any time loop. So... I, I liked the first half, but around about the 30-minute mark, give or take, I don't know, five minutes either direction, there's a scene that for me just shatters the time loop, and it's during the loop when Nick successfully destroys the Daleks by, you know, dodging the their, their what do you call that, the, the death ray that they shoot out. And then, you know, they all run downstairs and they're all having this conversation for like three minutes straight. And in that conversation, Sarah tells the doctor how they can leave the building and get out of the time loop. And instead of using those three minutes to just do that, the doctor devises a needlessly complicated plan to destroy the, what, five Daleks that are after them as though... Being in a more open environment where they could hide better would not be an advantage, or as though destroying the five Daleks will somehow result in the Daleks just giving up anyway. Like, the, her reasoning is that if they don't destroy them, they're just going to keep coming after them. But aren't the Daleks just going to keep coming after them anyway? So for me, the fact that they waste all of that time where they could have run out and gotten out of the time loop not doing that sort of renders the other loops kind of unnecessary because 
why are you still there? You had an escape. And I, I, it's kind of pedantic, but for me, it was such a big thing that it was like, why are we still here then? What, why is the rest of this episode happening? Which I think is interesting because um, I didn't catch that during the episode. I, it was something that was explained later. Um, during the episode, I was just sort of going with the flow. And so it didn't stand out to me or break the suspension of disbelief or anything like that. But I can see why it would for you if that's something that you immediately catch. I think my second watch was kind of like your first watch in that I just kind of enjoyed the ride while it was happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think if you just roll with something instead of looking for the little loopholes, you're ultimately going to enjoy that thing more. Like, now that you said that, I think that's genuinely why my first watch was sort of as unpleasant as it was, and why I'm really glad that I watched it again before we recorded this. I tried to make my written review not too grumpy about it, because it wasn't like I had a bad time the first watch, but I had a better time the second watch, because I kind of just, I knew this is what was happening, and I just accepted it. And I don't mean that as, as like an excuse for questionable writing or anything, but it's a festive special. They're meant to just have fun. And I had an easier time having fun the second time around. And there is a lot about this that is really fun. There is. There is a lot about it that's just delightful, which we'll get into. But I do want to address the other big issue that uh, that you had with it. And... I think a lot of uh, folks, from what I can tell, uh, based on the internet, uh, seem to have drawn the same conclusions, and that is the relationship between Sarah and Nick, the uh, budding relationship. They end up leaving to go travel the world together. Nick might be a serial killer. It's not even just that. The episode knows that that's what you're going to be thinking during a specific scene and explicitly jokes about it. Yeah, he keeps he keeps little trinkets from his exes. All the like but there must have been dozens of them in there. It sure looked like it. And he keeps them in a storage unit labeled with post-it notes. It's serial killer behavior. Th- those are those are trophies. And that's exactly what both Yaz and Sarah immediately think when they find out that's what's happening. They both look at each other and they're like, oh my god, this man's about to kill us right now. And he tries to explain it away by being like, oh, it's just stuff for my exes. But I'm sorry, you're like, this dude's like in his mid-30s. If he's got a one-night stand every night, maybe, but do that many people not just date him but leave stuff at his place? At, at some level, it's like it's clearly meant to be like a... Like one of those charming quirks, but it does not read that way. And because of that, the whole quirk of he comes here every New Year's Eve because he knows that's when Sarah's working and he has a crush on Sarah. And you're like, but he's been doing this for years and he's got a room full of trophies from other girls. Like, I think one or the other of those, while certainly extreme on the list of potential charming quirks you it's easier to roll with one of them maybe but the combination of the two just makes you like recoil the combination of the two makes you think that sarah is his next target that they are going to go to like vienna or something and sarah is never going to be heard from again and and not only that as if that's not a big enough issue i also just didn't buy that Sarah liked him at all. Like, as the episode begins, it's not even, like, it didn't read to me as though she just disliked him or, or just didn't, like, have an opinion, but that she actively disliked him. And and it, the episode never convinced me that that would change outside of the trope of, you know, the traumatic event brings people together kind of thing, which maybe is what they were going for. But again, with the context of everything else, it's just like, it's a whole lot of, like, uhs, you know? Yeah, and you can can tell when she starts to change her mind about him, specifically when he, like, 
sacrifices himself for her. But that didn't even read as noble to me. It read as, I want to get out of this situation where they're calling me a serial killer. So I'm just going to walk out the door and be shot down by Daleks. Yeah, and it's that's the that's the moment where she's like, "Oh, I'm gonna have feelings for this dude because he," which goes back to the they're only they only like each other because of the trauma situation. And th- to be clear, I don't think this is an acting issue. I think both uh, Ashling Bay and Johnny Salmon did the best they could. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely like a weird writing choice that got made and and maybe a directing choice. But I think it's more of a script issue where the stuff that maybe doesn't read as creepy on page absolutely reads creepy when it's seen. And the thing is, both of them make very compelling characters on their own. Like, I really would enjoy seeing more of Nick or seeing more of Sarah. The issue is that I I don't particularly get the romance between them. I mean, there's a little bit of me that wants to, but I don't, I don't know. It's, and then he flirted with her mom. Like, I see, I see what they were going for, right? They were going for this very, like, cute, oh, he's basically already part of the family. They get along so well. Look at this. But considering everything that had just happened, like, if it it had been maybe like a six month later thing, but it wasn't. I mean, even outside of that scene, like, I, I see what they were going for with that relationship, right? I understand they were they were trying to do, as the episode says multiple times, the, the kind-hearted weirdo thing. Oh, they were 100% trying to do a parallel. And that's respectable on some level, but it just, I just think they made them too weird. They did, and it didn't, didn't fit. And it also, part of the reason it didn't fit is because... When Yaz goes off with the doctor, she's going off with two other people as well. She's also going off with Ryan and Graham. And even if we try to parallel it with uh, Rose and the doctor, I mean, at, th- at least Rose's mother is not out there being like, oh, it's so cute. I'm totally on board for you to disappear for months with a stranger I've never met. I, it was just weird. I don't know. And so it it was not... Like, at least with Rose and Nine, they acknowledged that it was weird. Yeah, and generally they do. Like, I mean, even to some degree, they acknowledged it with 13 and, and the original companions, at Yaz, Ryan, and Graham, when they, when they popped back in during Arachnids. Like, Yaz's parents were kind of like, hmm, this is weird. Okay. And then, of course, also asked Yaz if she was dating the doctor. Which mm, that's a great segue, isn't it? Though <laughs> this this is the first time they have explicitly confirmed that Yaz has romantic feelings for the Doctor. It was so cute, Michael. It was so cute. It was so cute. As much as I might have dissed some of the other episode, the episode is worth it, specifically for like three scenes, and it's the one where Yaz and Dan talk. The one where Dan and the doctor talks, and then that scene towards the end with the fireworks. when the fireworks are happening, when all three of when, when like the doctor looks at Yaz, and then Dan's in the background looking between the doctor and Yaz, like he's like like he's a shipper going, "When are you guys gonna kiss? When's my ship getting together?" But the doctor looking at Yaz with those fireworks, she is having that little oh in italics moment. She is just like freaking freaking the heck out it's almost like it's the first time that she's allowed herself the the opportunity to think about think about that at all you know what i mean well i think she was doing the same thing that yaz was doing yaz was pretending to herself that she didn't that she didn't know she was in love with the doctor the doctor was pretending that she didn't know yaz was in love with her but the doctor the doctor was pretending that not just to Dan and Yaz, but she was pretending that to herself as well. She was pretending that she didn't know because then she didn't have to confront it. Yeah. But Dan made her confront it. And I think in that moment, it's the first time the doctor is actively going, like trying to process that and, and figure out how she might feel in response. Because that's the thing that's not confirmed in this episode is how the doctor feels towards Yaz outside of, you know, liking Yaz as a friend. But before we get to that, I want to talk about that first scene with Dan and Yaz. 
Well, actually, before we even get to that, because like that, that's a whole thing. But first, I just want to say that I still love the relationship that Yaz and Dan have. Oh, absolutely. You see it throughout the episode where it, it's – I called it paternal earlier today when Maggie and I were doing some prep for the episode. But I actually think what, what she said in response is closer to right, which is that it's kind of like an older brother, younger sister relationship. I mean that's that's sort of where I immediately went to with it. Especially with the whole, you know, only I'm allowed to tease him. You're not allowed to do that. And I just – I really enjoy the fact that, you know, they took four years to get here, but we didn't have to take the four years with them. Yeah. And, and I like that they, they've con- it's been consistent since then. I mean, I know it's only been like an episode and a half since those four years happened, but it, it's still nice to see even in the background because neither one of them does a lot in the episode, like plot wise, but every interaction they have, and even with other people, you can see that. That relationship feels authentic and lived in, where you know at any given time the friendship that Yaz and Dan have. It's solid. It's it's a very solid relationship. And I think it's more solid than she had with Ryan or Graham. I think so too, which is which is interesting considering she knew Ryan for years. Although I guess they lost contact between being kids and meeting up again but i digress i think i think it's i think it is that like familiarity and that bond that her and dan have that lets dan have this opportunity to i don't want to say confront necessarily but to confront yaz about her feelings yeah i definitely don't think that it would have been something that they would have been able to accomplish without that connection that they needed to establish this wouldn't have happened at the beginning of flux this wouldn't have happened at the beginning of their time together in the early 1900s and some of that's because dan definitely clocked during those four years yaz pining after the doctor via that hologram also do you think that dan because when i was first watching the episode it appeared to me that Dan was coming to the shocking realization that Yaz had never told the doctor how she felt. Upon a second go-through, I definitely thought it seemed more like, oh, Dan's been aware of this. Now, this is just, there was a final straw and he, he picked it up and said, I'm doing something about this. So which did you read the scene as because i could see it being read either way and i could still see it being read either way so to, for me i think it was generally the first I, I read it the first way that that dan had suspected for a while that yaz had feelings for the doctor but hadn't realized until that moment that she had never told the doctor that and and i'm I, i'm not sure why that specific moment would have been the moment that he realized that she'd never told her but that is how i read it was that this was the moment where he was like oh you haven't told her yet you need to because this is ridiculous i think it depends on how how soon we're thinking that this takes place after he joins them because if this happens like the same night that makes a lot of sense because he's just coming off of being rejected by Diane. All of his senses in that department are being heightened. He has a line that says that the doctor saved the world a week ago. So I'm guessing it's about a week after Flux, but I guess that depends on how much time took place between the doctor, you know, properly saving the day and Dan getting rejected by Diane and joining the TARDIS. But either way, all of this is fairly fresh, whether it's the same night or a few days later. Yeah, it's not like it's not like they've been traveling in between. Yeah. Either way, it's such a sweet moment because Dan goes into like such like big brother mode of of I've made all these mistakes. I don't want to see you make them. So you need to Pull up your boots and tell this woman that you got some feelings for her. And it's just, it's so 
gentle. The way the way that the scene plays out is just so just gentle and just this loving moment between two friends who just care so deeply about each other, which is really, really nice. The thing that struck me kind of the most about it was the way that, like, Dan didn't force her to admit this. Like, he, he sort of, he prodded it, but he, he he did allow her the room to, you know, come come to her conclusion and feel comfortable sharing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think the whole scene just goes back to solving, actually, a problem that we've had with Chibnall since the beginning, which is that he, he is really big into telling us what's going on instead of showing us what's going on. Yeah. But this scene was like, this scene allowed the, the characters to just say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Just show what was going on between them, between Yaz and the doctor. And it was just such a lovely moment that was unexpected from Chibnall. It was, it, it wasn't just sharing information, but it was like, it was actual interpersonal drama. And, and it also gave Mandip Gill and John Bishop like a the chance to like really sink their teeth into something. It's a short scene, but it's still that kind of a scene is really difficult to play. Oh yeah, and John Bishop, this episode really just gave him so much to work with for a character who really didn't have much to do in the episode. <laughs> like he has the scene with Yaz, he has the scene with the doctor, he has that glorious scene with the Dalek. <laughs> Which is absolutely iconic. And it's like obviously you know, he's John Bishop. He is a famous comedian. Of course, he's going to be good at the funny scenes, but... But he's also the heart of the episode. Yeah. Yeah, and just putting all of that together just makes for such a good performance. I mean, he's been consistently good throughout uh, his time, but I feel like this was like a... It was a highlight for him. Definitely. And and I just I, I just love it. I don't know. I can't, I can't say enough positive things about, about Dan Lewis. I... I absolutely adore him as a character and i'm going to be very very sad when he leaves and i'm i'm, I'm gonna be i'm gonna be really sad when yaz leaves too because i think this episode was also really strong for her even though neither of them had anything to do plot wise i just both of them have come so far since the beginning of flux where where they just feel i mean i hate to keep saying it like this but they just feel like people you understand the relationship they have with each other and with the Doctor, and you feel like they don't just feel like characters, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. They're not the audience proxy. Yeah, they, they feel like they have you know, internal the, lives. The, the Doctor isn't their teacher, they're not student. I mean, with the exception of specifically Bill and Twelve, but like, that is a very singular, specific exception. But the point is, they're partners in this this isn't the doctor going around and having to explain everything it's it's that it's that flat team structure that that 13 has mentioned multiple times but you never really felt was the truth and this this you feel the, you feel the flat team structure it's like oh yeah all of them have something specific they bring to the table and they're on almost an even playing ground with the doctor with the exception that the doctor you know, certainly has more experience under her belt. But but nobody's being talked down to. And in the moments where they are, the doctor gets called out for it. When she, you know, gets really testy with with Yaz and Dan telling them they need to stay by the TARDIS. In the scene that, you know, immediately prompts Yaz and Dan's conversation that we've been spent the last 10 minutes talking about. Like, that's <laughs> prompted by... That unspoken calling out of the doctor where, like, the doctor has to come back and, like, apologize for yelling at them. 
But it, she does apologize, which sh- shows her character development. I mean, the amount of development all of these characters have had this season has been delightful to watch. And in this episode, you really get that payoff. And and speaking of that, we see it again in that scene where Dan and the doctor talk, because that is immediately preceded by, you know, Yaz and the doctor having another really testy exchange. And that's where that scene to me felt like Dan, that was the scene where it felt like Dan, you know, saw the, the straw break the camel's back, right? Where he's like, you were being unreasonable to this this woman who is in love with you and you need to knock it off and 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 think about your feelings for a second that's what he, i took away from that scene full big brother mode he, he yeah it was like it was borderline a scolding oh yeah i mean let's 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 take a moment and predict the doctor's expression if she and yes do get together and dan has to sit sit the doctor down <laughs> and give her that shovel talk oh no <laughs> <laughs> I am kind of curious how this plays out going forward. We've only got two episodes left, which seems like an awful short amount of time to uh, do a whole lot with this plot line. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. (sighs) But I mean, I want to be hopeful, right? Because I think it is sort of a monumental thing that they are even doing this at all, right? Because I think most of us thought this would never leave the realm of subtext. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, you think that Bill's thing with the water girl was as good as it's going to get for main character. Yeah. And it's it's just cool. I mean, we've, we've been talking throughout this about the increased representation on Doctor Who and what that means and the importance of that. And for this to add to that, that diversity is monumental. I think you really can't get enough queer representation in a country that has the issues with queer politics that England does. And I think the fact that they chose to do this was pretty incredible. And I think it's going to be a net positive Almost regardless of how it ends, unless they end it really poorly, which I'm very hopeful they won't. So what for you would be ending it poorly? Anything that's too tragic. I understand that all regenerations and all companion departures come with some level of tragedy, whether it's just the general sadness that someone's leaving or whether... You know, for for a doctor regeneration, you're dealing with actual death, right? I I don't want Yaz to die. I think Doctor Who has a really big problem with coming with either directly killing their gaze, or like what happened with both Bill and Clara of kind of killing them, but then undoing that in some way. I think Yaz needs to not die. Like that's the big thing. If they kill Yaz. It's going to leave a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Definitely. But I also, what worries me is that Graham and Ryan left so easily and so jovially on such good terms. And to have that and to pair that with the fact that, so of the two exits, is he going to, is Chibnall going to have both of them be happily ever after exits? I don't think so. And also, I don't think that there is any way, given what we know about Yaz, what we have been shown and told about Yaz through all these seasons, there is no way that she is going to leave the Doctor of her own accord. So what I'm thinking is that it's going to be, I don't, I don't think that Chibnall is going to kill her, but I do worry that it is going to end up being like, a rose situation or a donna situation where they're not dead but the tragedy is they can never ever be with the the doctor again see i well i agree with you that i think there's going to be something sadly tragic that happens i 
what I think may end up happening is less that she's going to end up like trapped at that something is going to like physically happen, but more that either the doctor won't reciprocate her feelings and it would be kind of like a Martha situation or that something in that final episode will happen where everyone involved realizes that it, it's not a a situation that would work long term. So basically what I think is that Yas is going to get her heart broken. Yeah, I think I think she has to in order for her to leave whatever whatever way that whatever way that cookie crumbles, it's going to result in Yas getting her heart broken. And that sucks. Like I don't want to undercut the fact that that sucks. And on some level, the audience kind of deserves some kind of a happy ending. But this is a show where people have to leave. And and those departures are generally sad. So I, I think it's just – it's how, how they do that. Like what, what route they go with that. Because I think, I think there is a way. And I would have to sit here and really try and like brainstorm an actual – story solution but but i think there is a way that they can try and walk both lines as carefully as they can but it's gonna it it would take a lot of work oh definitely but i also i don't think that it's going to be a situation like martha where the doctor doesn't reciprocate the feelings and i say that because for those of you who are listeners and don't know me uh, I am a big fan of the Hallmark movies, and what happened with the uh, fireworks scene at the end is one of the biggest tropes in a Hallmark movie, and usually it accompanies some sort of dialogue where the uh, love interest is looking up at the beautiful night sky or the northern lights or the fireworks and says something to the extent of it's beautiful and the other person says yeah yeah it is but they're not looking at the sky they're looking at her um which is sort of exactly how that was directed except without dialogue and the the looking at her was mixed with you know, it was warmth that faded to fear. The doctor is very afraid of whatever she realized in that moment. That's that's why I said that it might be less of a, like, rejection based on the doctor having no feelings, but a rejection based on... The doctor having lots of feelings. Yeah. And, but, but both to Yaz would read, uh, could read as a rejection that would result in her not wanting to travel anymore. Like, like, if you're feeling that deeply about somebody, and for whatever reasons that person says, no, we can't do this, you really going to want to keep traveling with them? You're not. It's going to be too hard. I think, I mean, and in a way I hope this doesn't because, like, it's it's so sad. But I think, I think if you have to invent a way to get her to leave of her own accord, that's probably the route you need to take to avoid like really upsetting people yeah because yaz does deserve love and happiness and all of the good things and so for her to have a martha moment where she's like you know what i was good and i will be good that would at least make something positive out of that it would that being said i i would love it if if the last like 15 minutes of the 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 centenary special were just Yaz and the doctor living a very long life together and and you know Yaz just getting older and eventually you know dying of old age after a very long and happy life with the doctor and then the doctor regenerating that would it would be an absolutely bonkers way to end what's essentially a season finale but I would just have such mad respect I mean, just imagine Chibnall going out on that note, that note that is the note that is just this once everybody lives and everybody gets a happy ending. And just what a move that would be. But like, as much as we joke about it, is that not such a Doctor Who thing, though? Even in this era, like, 
Bell's whole thing was that like love is the only thing worth fighting for. This this season has had a theme of love being the most important thing. So it would thematically be a pretty decent ending. And also it would it would be it would be a very 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 gutsy choice from a show running standpoint. I would just sometimes those gutsy choices don't pay off. I'm looking at you Divergent trilogy. But sometimes those gutsy choices pay off so, so well. And I think this would would pay off very, very well. And it's not even unprecedented in terms of Doctor Who. I mean, this wasn't the thing I'm about to reference wasn't a season finale. But the the Husbands of River Song ended with River Song and Twelve living together for the equivalent of 24 years on Derillium. Like, it, it is not out of character for the doctor to settle down for what is essentially a brief amount of time in the context of their many many years of life and i just think it would be such a nice little positive note to end it on and i don't know i'm not even saying that it would work but i would i just think i would appreciate the absolute audacity of somebody to do that and just this once, as Chibnall bows out, just this once the doctor dances. It would just it would be it would be poetic. But also in that lovely little montage, they do have to uh make sure that Yaz does have her own self. She's not in there just to be a love interest or a voiceless prize to be won. Cause I mean, we've seen that. We've seen that in plenty of shows where and movies and i'm not even trying to single out one particular instance but we see a lot when they do the happily ever after the woman's sort of not not okay so a lot of times it is the woman because it's heteronormative and you've got the man as the main character and the woman's the love interest but oftentimes the love interest character is relegated to that title she is the love interest and that is not what i want to see for yaz no i i agree but also i did want to mention one little thing something i thought was interesting when he first appeared on screen i definitely thought that he was the jeff that they had mentioned the entire episode um but there is a man at the end and i don't know if this is going to be a thing or if it was just a nod to um a nod to the origins of this era but it was carl who was a forklift driver crane operator he did some uh stuff in the in the crane yard where um in the first episode of in the first episode where they where we meet 13 for the first time I, I also thought that that was Jeff until I was later informed by the internet that it was not. <laughs> what a strange cameo that was. And I just want to know why. They weren't even in Sheffield. <laughs> why was he there? So there has to be a reason. Does there? Because, I mean, we think that everything in this show has to be a reason. And every time we think that. I know. It could have It could have just been. It could have just been a cute little nod. But it's just such a strange callback to make. Like, of all the characters, bring back the guy that nobody remembers. Like, the only reason that I even knew about it, I mean, it's in the credits, was that I read the Radio Times review and they mentioned that he's there. And I was like, who? Who is Carl? Yeah, I believe I believe that it was uh, Sci-Fi Wire comments that uh, turned me onto the fact that this was Carl. That makes it, but it's like, what a strange decision. <laughs> also, like, it should have been Jeff because, like, they mentioned that Jeff. <laughs> might... No, 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 no. Hear me out. It should have been Jeff though because they mentioned that it looks like Jeff lives in the storage unit. No, it would so... make sense that he would be right around there. He'd be right around there, and it would also confirm to us that he was not in the storage unit when they blew it up. Was that was that a worry? Some people are like, um, did they kill Jeff? <laughs> Did they just not find – I mean, there are plenty like, – he could have been hiding in one of those units. Like That's true. They could oh have God, killed Jeff. Oh, my God. They totally Jeff. killed Jeff. <laughs> it should have been Jeff totally so that we all Jeff. knew that Jeff was fine. Maybe maybe this is where we learn that Carl is Jeff. 
Uh, Je- Jeff's his middle name. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happened was, after Tim Shaw, like, you know, scared the crap out of him, or whatever happened in that episode that I haven't. He watched said, in "I got to reinvent myself. I'm, I'm he, going to like, Manchester. Uh, I got to get out of Sheffield. Can't be here." Went and got a job because you know what? She did mention. Sarah did mention that this has been going on for like three or four years, and that would be like. If we're assuming that time in the Doctor Who universe moves at roughly the same time as our universe, that would be three or four years ago. This is true. I'm just saying. So Carl went to Manchester, changed his name, started going by his middle name. And is related to Sarah. Well, that's that's why they went that's why he went to Manchester of all places. He went back to his family, yeah. Yeah. That's my theory. Oh, maybe Carl was the middle name that he'd been going by. And so he maybe. went back to uh, a again. place where they, yeah, where they called him by his name that First he name. was going by when he was younger. Yeah. That's my theory. Sticking to it. Carl and Jeff are the same guy. No basis for this whatsoever. But Absolutely none. So speaking of the future, we did get the briefest of previews of the spring special, which doesn't have an air date yet, but it is called legend of the sea devils and i i'm 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 into it i'm into it so michael for those of uh those of the folks who are following along at home who might not know uh explain a little bit about the sea devils because they are a race that appeared in classic who uh and i know that you have in your watch of classic who seen at least one of their episodes I have. So essentially, the Sea Devils are the aquatic version of the Silurians. They are more or less sister species. They both existed in a prehistoric time and largely went underground until human uh, shenanigans, mostly pollution in both cases, uh, disturbed them and they came back to the surface to more or less attempt to take it back over, right? The sea devils are largely, or at least in their first appearance, were largely tied in with uh, sea pollution. So that's sort of generally their gist. To my knowledge, they only appeared a, a handful of times in Classic Who. They're not one of those monsters that are, you know, like regularly recurring they're not Santarans or Cybermen or Daleks. They they only appeared a few times. But they're they're ones that have really captured the imaginations of fans. And in certain circles, people have really been clamoring for them to come back for years. So it's kind of exciting that in this like big, you know, special, they're finally bringing back the Sea Devils alongside a pirate episode yes i love a good pirate episode not only is it a pirate episode but it's about a real historical pirate uh who went by the name of madam ching she was a chinese pirate during the 19th century and the doctor yaz and dan are going to meet her so we're we're getting a basically a celebrity historical episode at the same time as the return of the Sea Devils, which is kind of fun. It is fun. And I think it's it's really cool because, I mean, I, I'm going to level with you. My entire knowledge of pirates is the pirates who sailed in the Caribbean. So you've got, you know, you've got your Sam Bellamy's and your Blackbeard's. But to have... A chance to hear more about pirates in the South China Sea is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be, it's going to be like when, as an American watching Demons of the Punjab, because that's not something that we're, we learn about in American schools. So it's just, I think it's just going to be a fun time. And I think if they do it, if they do it right, it's not going to end up the way that War of the Centaurans did, where the celebrity historical aspect doesn't land and in fact just sort of makes the episode a little bit more confusing. Because, like, this is going to be the entire 
setting and they're at sea and you've got the sea devils, whereas with that, the Centaurans sort of just picked a place and showed up. So I'm I'm excited. Speaking on your point, the synopsis actually and the trailer more or less confirm that Madame Ching is the cause of the sea devils reemerging. So so the two are very linked in exactly the way you want them to be so that both of them feel relevant to the story. So so I think I based on the little they're teasing so far, I am fairly hopeful that this will that that Madame Ching and her crew will be a more important part of the story than Mary Seacole was in the Santarin episode, for example. Good. I don't say this as a way of, like, negging on Eve of the Daleks, but this trailer got me, like, just really excited because it just looked like – it looked really fun. And, I mean, to be fair, I also thought the trailer for Eve of the Daleks looked really fun, so who knows. But I, I'm just so – it just looks so fun, Maggie. It just looks so fun. It looks like some regular Doctor Who shenanigans. They're on a pirate ship. They're meeting a historical figure. They're interacting with some weird creatures. It is... I mean, this is... It's like... It's checking all the boxes. It is. It is very much just a good old campy Doctor Who episode, and... I sincerely hope they lean into that camp because it will be so worth it if they do. So we don't have a whole lot else to go off of, and we can't exactly ask you to tune in next week to find out if our theories ring true, but we will be back later this spring to talk all about Legend of the Sea Devils. So until then, thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Who's Talking, and we hope that you have a great start to 2022.